Grosso from Vancouver to win it for Canada! Canada came! Canada conquered! Canada gold! Buchanan with the cross in towards Alfonso Davies! Canada's history-making moment delivered by their biggest superstar! A goal the country has been dreaming about for decades! Finally arrives! You're listening to the Northern Football Podcast with Peter Galindo. Alexander Gongay-Rujic and your host, Ben Steiner. Hey there, folks, and welcome back to the Northern Football Podcast. It's episode 134 of NFB. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, as well as follow us all on social. Ben Steiner alongside Alex Gongay-Rujic and Peter Galindo, as always here on the show. And we'll get right into it. Canada will play Jamaica in their CONCACAF Nations League quarterfinal in November with a second leg at BMO Field. The Winner of that quarterfinal, of course, going to the Copa America uh, as well as the semifinal. First leg on November 16 in Kingston. Second leg, November 21 in Toronto. Jamaica won Group B in League A with 10 points. Uh, just how you guys doing and thoughts on that initial matchup? Doing well. Um, I mean, in terms of the matchup itself, look, they were probably, if we had to predict it before the group stage started, it was probably going to be Panama or Jamaica. Those two teams end up winning their groups. Jamaica relatively comfortably Panama had to wait till the final day because Trinidad and Tobago were just on fire and then they played a 5-3 thriller in Curacao to close it out um but I think of those two teams it's kind of a pick your poison situation because Panama are going to be very familiar with Canada now and vice versa they are clearly a very well-structured disciplined team with some quality in their side such as Adalberto Carasquia um, but then you look at Jamaica and they have the individual quality to punish you. So they're going to have to be careful because if you give Jamaica the opportunities that Japan was getting specifically off those individual errors, they're going to have the quality with Mikhail Antonio or Leon Bailey, Bobby de Cordova Reed, et cetera, to get something off of you. Whereas against Panama, look, it was a close game in June, but the difference really overall, and we can get into the tactical minutia of that game if we really want to, but really the big difference was Canada had Jonathan David, Panama did not. That's where the balance kind of tilts a little bit and becomes pretty even in terms of the individual quality. And Jamaica's going to come in riding a bit higher than maybe Canada would be just because of the 4-1 loss. So we'll we'll see. It's going to be a very intriguing matchup in two legs. Uh, the fact that the second leg's at home is interesting, but... Uh, overall, it's going to be a tough game. I think we knew that Canada should have enough to be able to get it done, but Jamaica is going to make it pretty difficult. That's for sure. Yeah, I mean, doing doing well over here, but in terms of this matchup, it's tough because I'd probably say overall, I'd probably not want to see Panama more. I just think they're I more agree. consistent. Yeah. Um, Thomas Christensen's probably the better coach because he's probably one of the best, if not right now, if you're doing the power rankings, he's definitely up there in terms of coaches in CONCACAF. Um, he's been for a while. Panama's just more consistent. What I like is they're more even top to bottom as a team. Like they got, of course, a Karaskia who's kind of the clear standout, but then after that, there's not a huge drop off and they've just got such a good system. Jamaica's tough to gauge because they're just so hit or miss. And I think the record kind of reflects that in the sense, and I say hit or miss in the sense that at their best, they can probably be the best team in CONCACAF. Their just attack is absolutely electric. I mean, that's pretty much a Premier League front three. Of course, Damari Gray has since moved to the Saudi League, but, you know, he's what? He's only two months into that move. Michael Antonio still starting regularly for West Ham. Leon Bailey's had a pretty good start to the year for Aston Villa, that front three, that goes up up against anyone in CONCACAF. That goes up against some pretty good European teams, I'd say. But then it's just the drop-off. You go from that to there's still USL championship players in the squad. And of course, the USL championship's a very good league, don't get me wrong. But it's just that stark drop-off, especially at other positions. Um, in goal, for example, well beyond Andre Blake. Um, you know, you just you look at some of the depth, you look at the back as well. Of course, it'll depend if someone like Ethan Pinnock is in the squad because he's someone who, if he comes in, that immediately changes the equation. But uh, it's just a very top-heavy team, and it reflects that. They were one of the most dominant offensive teams in League A, as expected. Gray has really gone into a, a good run of form in particular. Um, but then it's just at the back, they were sloppy. They got into a few slugfests where it's 
you know, goal after goal. And I think for Canada, you kind of like that because obviously Canada has the attack to go at a defense like that and come out with goals. The only worry is Canada's defense has kind of been a struggle and going up against the likes of Bailey, Antonio, Gray, et cetera, et cetera, that could be a tough task for them. So it's kind of a pick your poison. I think Panama would have offered more of the overall threat. And they, I think they dodged a bullet not having to play Panama just because like you mentioned, in that Nations League semifinal, it could have easily gone the other way. But this Jamaica game is tough, especially that first leg. If Jamaica comes out on fire, gets off to a hot start, all of a sudden you're down 2 or 3 nil. it's going to be tough to come back from that. So I think really the first leg is going to be the, the big differentiator because I think if Canada can get back home with it tied or with it with close enough, they, they'll, they'll certainly have a chance against that Jamaican defense. But otherwise, that Jamaican firepower could put this tie out of reach early is my fear. Yeah, and with Jamaica as well, it's always such a you know touch-and-go team because you never know the necessarily the players they'll be able to draw into their camp. Um, you know, they've not really had consistency in a lot of their performances. Uh, they consistently get into the final stage, whether, you know, that's the octagonal or the... CONCACAF Nations League quarterfinals, um, but they're not necessarily always that surefire win against sort of the mid-tier of CONCACAF, but Canada's not always that surefire win against the mid-tier of CONCACAF either. So it's definitely a bit of a coin toss. Like on paper, you'd say it favors Canada in a lot of ways, but Canada could very well trip up against Jamaica and it's, it's not an easy test. I think you would much rather have a different team than Jamaica, even if that would be you know, a, a Panama who you didn't have the easiest time with in the last Nations League semifinal. I suppose. But what, what Alex did say about the consistency, I think that's really the one thing that from a Canadian angle, you'd be scared of because what is really the big reason why Jamaica has in a way underachieved specifically in World Cup qualifying while they were constantly bringing in new dual nationals, guys couldn't travel due to COVID restrictions. So they were always depleted in some way. And even right before the gold cup, they recruited a few guys and that's going to keep messing with the chemistry a little bit. It's going to take time for guys to get used to the tactical platforms and to be embedded into the side. And you imagine with Jamaica kind of on the rise now, more and more of those dual nationals are going to keep committing to Jamaica. And that's only going to keep messing up the chemistry more. So that's really the one reason why, if you're looking at it from point of view of, well, clearly it's a pick your poison situation because Panama, they're consistent. They have a settled squad. You know what they're going to bring at you. But on the flip side, they are also aware of what you're going to bring towards. Whereas Jamaica, they're constantly evolving, constantly changing. Yes, they have the individual quality, but they are inconsistent. And defensively, they can be had. I mean, I understand it's going to be a different squad now compared to a couple of years ago. But look at that World Cup clinching qualifier at BMO Field, right? I mean, Canada just ran rampant from minute one onwards. You could see that even though it took them a while to get that opening goal, eventually you knew it was going to come and then the floodgates opened. Well, I guess I'd argue, though, that Jamaica has also built up a core of guys. Like, yeah, there's been a lot of tinkering on the edges, but I that's Antonio's been in the fold for about two, three years now. Um, Gray's been on the... played often, though, because of the uh, COVID restrictions, right? Yeah, but he started. He, I mean, it's a sign of intent that he's been there for these. Yeah, recently, Copa, he has these yeah. these qualifiers. Leon Bailey is up to twenty three caps now for Jamaica. Damari Gray three goals and six caps. He's been consistent. Um, you know, Bobby Decor uh, De Cordova Reed twenty two caps. You know, it's a full of midfielder there, a Premier League midfielder. You look at the back. There's a couple of Premier League guys. Uh, you know, and. Um, uh, Ethan Pinnock, of course, like I mentioned, he wasn't there this window, but he was there in September. Um, you got, you also got um, Bell. Um, so I just wanted Amari Bell from Luton Town as well. Fourteen right. caps. Like those guys have been consistently accepting the call, especially the last few years. And I think that's a core guy. That's two defenders, a midfielder, a front three. So it is. I think they have found some consistency as well. And I think it's telling that finally they've been able to get some of these guys together for the for a set of nations league games and they still got three wins one draw um which just shows that that potential so uh yeah i I, there's certainly like you mentioned there's been a lot of dual nationals a lot of chopping and changing but it does feel like they finally kind of have a core group of guys that they're going to want to push to 2026 with so that'll be something that canada will have to contend with and from accomplished troll at toronto maple fc2 thoughts on the csa learning nothing from the can wnt game and gouging fans plus having the top half of the stadium closed. And is it safe to say that there's zero chance that we see anyone experimental this window, given what's on the line? I think there's a chance you see, you know, 
a Luke Defuge roles to bring him in to get cap tied, but I don't know whether he mm. accepts that call up. Um, but it's a competitive game, so it's a it's a cap tying opportunity for some of those guys. But then again, based on history, based on you know a lot of the, for lack of a better word, vanilla that comes with Mauro Biello, I don't necessarily see any shock surprises with, with this window. No, like maybe Harry Payton because he got minutes against Japan, but you know, he wasn't particularly impressive. Um, and you can't call up the really the large squad that you could against Japan. So um, I would not expect really too many surprises. Morrow's also said it in the media. I think the roster that he chose in October kind of reflected that in that they're not going to really take any chances here. They're just going to kind of go with what they know. They want to rebuild that chemistry that the team previously had, and they're going to go into that Jamaica game with the experience that they have, right? So I don't think much is going to change in that regard, if at all. Uh, In terms of the ticketing, there were some reasonably priced tickets. Like I saw ones that were available for like 40 bucks or something, I think after fees and all that, but those are obviously going to go very quickly. I think after that, you're talking like 60, 70, $80, something like that. It's a conversation we've had several times, like make the tickets reasonably priced, sell it out. I mean, you saw with the women's national team, what, what happened, you had a completely packed building to watch our women's national team play in an important game. Like how awesome is that? You could have had the same opportunity with the men. And by charging more, you're pricing out fans from going and you're not having a decent atmosphere, which is kind of what you want to have. Like, what's one of the big reasons why you go to a football match? It's for the atmosphere. So to prevent more people from going, especially given the cost of living crisis we're in, it just doesn't seem like a smart move. We understand the Federation is strapped for cash. We understand they want to make it back. But again, conversation we've had several times, if you charge a little less and sell out the stadium, you're going to end up making as much, if not more, than what you would have earned by charging what you currently are. And I guess just something else on that as well. Ticket sales is one way that the Federation can actually make money. That money doesn't go to CSB. And so as much as I like to see games in a smaller stadium, is it smart to be playing in Halifax when you're not making the tickets absurdly expensive in Halifax either? Like they're, they're, reasonably priced um i suppose but but like would you not be better filling the stadium in toronto in vancouver where you can get you know twenty thousand for a friendly probably um at a a decent price ticket because you know like i'm sure the wanderers grounds is is not an expensive venue to to rent but you get a certain amount of money you get a certain amount of games that you're able to host um shouldn't you be cashing in on this well Yes, but also you're going to be playing games in every single window. So that helps. You've got the men playing at home at BMO Field. We don't know how many we're going to see, but you're going to see some money come in from that. So I think just based on the sheer volume of games, it's going to make up for maybe playing in a smaller venue. Plus, you're going on tour across the country. How many times have we said Montreal deserves games from our men and women? You know, the East Coast deserves games from our men and women, even in the prairies, you, you know, and, and it was great to see that Edmonton got two pivotal World Cup qualifiers for the men, right? And, and you saw it reflected, first of all, in the prices that were charged, and then also the quality of the team and that people showed up, provided a great atmosphere. And now that's, those are two of the most iconic qualifiers that the national team has ever played. I can definitely see why you would go to Halifax, especially when you know you're going to have two more games in November, most likely. Um, the men are going to have a game in November as well. And the momentum's building. So yeah, I, I don't see any problem playing in a smaller stadium if it means you're getting exposure for the programs in those cities. Yeah, growing the game and making more money don't necessarily always go hand in hand because just look at the US with, the, again, I mean, yeah, they're making a lot of money with their ticket like ticket method but i just find it absurd that their men's national team as well gearing up for a home world cup in 2026 a world cup where they've got a very legitimate chance at doing something and they're playing preparatory games like against ghana against a could you even say it was a half full godis park in nashville it looked barely a quarter full and it's just like it was like that's just absurd because yeah you're you know, maybe you're making more money, but then, yeah, it just, I don't know. I just, that, that never sits uh, right with me. And as for the ticket points, yeah, I just, I'd rather sell out the the stadium, even if you drop the, the, the ticket prices a bit more. And it is kind of ironic, especially that the women's team sells out the stadium, 
it's almost an insult to the women's team as well that they price the men's tickets higher being like, Oh, there's going to be more demand. It's going to sell. And just, it's kind of, you know, it shows that it's like, okay, it is not only is it insulting, it just, it shows that it's no one's going to pay that sort of money, especially like, yeah, this is, you know, maybe the diehard men's national team fans going to know this is a huge game. This is Copa America. You know, the, the average fan isn't going to know what, CONCACAF Nations League quarterfinal is they're gonna what the heck is that like <laughs> like that doesn't even exactly, know what Copa America is either yeah exactly like that doesn't ring the bell the same way as Canada versus Jamaica you win you go to a World Cup Canada versus Jamaica you win you go to an Olympics like some of these past sold out games against Jamaica have been like at BMO Field uh so I think it's just it's you know it's not only is it insulting to the women's team it's just again it shows a lack of awareness in terms of you know, what these games actually mean. And again, I think it's just a better long-term if you can fill the stadiums, build interest in the sport, because at the end of the day, that's the sort of stuff that's going to get grassroots numbers up. That's going to, the sort of stuff that's going to sell you more merch, which is also can help you long-term. That's the sort of stuff that's going to bring people back to more games. And as we've mentioned, the the big one, it's how you get families to the games. Cause if tickets are being sold for 50, that might be fine for, you know, say you just you and a buddy want to go, or even you, you go on your own 50 bucks, you take the transit, you go down, it's an easy sell. If you're a family of four trying to go to a game and tickets are 50, all of a sudden what becomes a, you know, a standard 50 plus bus fare night turns into 200 bucks plus parking, plus food, plus everything, which again, that's the, that's the demographic you need to be pulling in. It's the you know, the, the those diehards will be there no matter what, but it's those those kids, those longer generation fans that are going to build your program over the, the years and just feels like they're the biggest losers in all this. And that's probably the most disappointing thing. And also Bebo Field food is some of the most expensive stadium food that I've seen maybe ever. Um, like stadium food in, in North America is generally very expensive, but at Bebo Field, it just seemed like another level compared to what else you see generally around. So that took me by a bit of a surprise. So it's definitely a, an expensive outing if you're to go to, you know, even a TFC game. Uh, but from Johnny Lord at J on the spot 12, did the Japan match change your mind on the next coach? I want someone who can't even find Canada on a map and has zero knowledge of the Canadian player pool. Someone who will really shake things up by putting their stamp on things and won't feel that they are inheriting a team. Canada's pretty big on a map, so it'd be pretty challenging not to find it. Um, I think maybe you'd be looking at potentially an American coach if, if you're looking at those qualifications. But in, in all seriousness, I, I do think that you have enough world-class players on the Canadian team that you're not necessarily finding somebody who is going to be completely foreign to the likes of Alfonso Davies, Jonathan David, um, Alistair Johnson, even with the, the way he's been playing for Celtic. So you're not going to find somebody who doesn't know anything and can kind of get a feel of the group. Um, plus you don't necessarily have time to get a feel of the group before you have to start getting results. So so you need somebody who kind of knows where they're they're at. And as is the case with, with any team, unless you're an expansion team of some sort, then you are inheriting a team. You're inheriting a roster. You're inheriting a group of players. And the challenge is what you can do with it. So I think you can find somebody who's not worked in Canadian soccer before and that maybe that's the way to go. And, you know, reports out of Spain that Carlo Ancelotti has offers from Canada, um, which, of course, would you would hire in a heartbeat. Um, but I don't necessarily think that's the best option uh somebody who doesn't know the player pool at all and needs that time to get up to speed well i get the premise it is a bit hyperbole but i would you know you could argue as well having that fresh perspective like obviously i think you know if this person whoever is going to get hired is you'd have to uh, you know assume they're qualified to know who you know the good players are but it is a, a point in the sense that uh in terms of being able to assess the pool, just having a fresh eye, different perspective could always be interesting, right? Like that can kind of be the benefit of someone coming in. Of course, they're going to learn about the pool quickly, but just having that different perspective could, you know, refresh in things because sometimes that's part of the reason why it's so hard to be a coach long-term is that those relationships that you build, the loyalty you have to certain guys, it can be tough if four or five years, if you have to have a tough discussion with some players, be like, okay, maybe you don't fit in the vision where you've been such an important person. You've built up that trust that can be so much tougher to build versus where if you come in as that fresh perspective, you can kind of be a bit more ruthless off the start and, and kind of put your stamp on things. So I get, I, I would agree with that perspective that 
of the candidates. I think just having at least one with that fresh perspective could be interesting. Of course, we'll have to see who ends up emerging as the best candidates and go from there. But I do think that perspective um, could be welcome. Um, but also someone like, you know, a Canadian who, who, who knows also the pool could be beneficial because they might, uh, you know, know some aspects of the pool that might need improving or that they feel they could change. So there's kind of, it's, you know, it's kind of pick your, your choice, but uh, certainly, you know, you do wonder what a fresh perspective uh, could like, especially because it feels like this Canadian pool, there is a lot of untapped, right? Like there's a lot of untapped dual nationals. There's, you know, there's some other players that maybe haven't gotten as much of a look and you wonder if a, if a new voice came in and shook things up, if that could, uh, you know, maybe unlock something that we haven't seen yet from Canada. And from Dan Clark, is Bobby Smirniotis the odds-on favorite to get the Canaman T job? I'd love to see it, but I don't think it's safe at this point to say that Bobby Smirniotis is the odds-on favorite to get any sort of promotion or award because he's always been the bridesmaid, not the bride in a lot of these scenarios, whether that's, you know, CPL coach of the year, the Toronto FC gig. Um, so it's hard to put your money on him, uh, just given the history, but logically, I think he should. I mean, I think it's telling that... Uh... You know, he's always been so coy about the Toronto job, about the Montreal job that came up, which he interviewed for last year, even the CPL, the coach, like he's always coy, just, you know, it doesn't affect me business as usual. I did find it interesting that he commented on being, of course, I'd love to coach the Canadian men's national team. To be fair, if you're him, why would you, you know, why, like, why would you even entertain the possibility of you not being interested? That is something where, you know, you should, you, you should make it clear that you are interested. Um, so in terms of odds on favorite, I don't know just because we haven't, you know, heard enough about some of these candidates that are out there. Because I mean, it's been reported by multiple people that there are there is a lot of interest in the Canadian men's national team job. Of course, you know, there's a difference between interest and then, of course, actually sitting down and being interviewed or putting in, you know, formal application or you, you know, you talk about salary and all that. Um, but you know, it sounds like there is a relative. Uh, sphere of, of, of high profile interest but based on what we know about Smirnotis he should certainly be in that mix he you know he's he's a Canadian he knows this pull very well he's worked a lot with these top players he has a history when CONCACAF he ticks a lot of boxes so he definitely remains someone that should be uh that you know should be in the discussion but uh as of right now we don't know if he's the odds on favorite maybe he just is because we don't know anything or enough about the rest of the candidates to to suggest so it'll be interesting if uh, any names uh, do squeak out over the next few weeks and months and from brent at br canada do you think jesse marsh might be a sleeper pick for manager i would say so i'd say that'd be one where you know it's obviously he'd come in as an american um but he's familiar with canada he did of course coach in montreal so there's that familiarity there um you know what's fascinating about a guy like jesse marsh i mean he's uh, he's someone that's very, I just find it like his interest from his time in, in Germany and Austria, how quickly he picked up the German language. I imagine based on his stint in Montreal, he knows, uh, he probably has a decent French and I'm sure he'll pick it up, uh, quickly. His, his, you know, his style of play, I, I, I don't mind. He, he's got a decent track record. Um, he's hundred percent someone that, uh, you know, I wouldn't mind that sort of candidate where maybe he just needs a fresh start after how things went in, in Europe, especially that Leeds job was just such a brutal one in terms of the expectations and the pressure and the timing of it. Um, so yeah, a Marsh, a Smirniotis. I continue to really like the idea of a Wilford Nancy if they can find a way. Of course, that one might be hard with his, you know, contract situation, but I'd love to see something like that. So there's definitely options out there. I mean, heck, you even saw those you know, the cheering Guido today tweeting that Carlo Ancelotti still has interest from Canada. Of course, we know that's very probably far-fetched given the source, but hey, just there's some interesting names out there and, uh, you know, be it domestically or if an Ancelotti enters the race, we'll uh, be interested how that unfolds. And from Ambitious Canada at Ambitious Canada, if Canada is looking at Luke Dufou's roles for a national team camp, should another player in the U21 Premier League like Jamie Knight-Labelle be considered? He's a center back as well, captains his team and is featured for the U20s. I think it's two different situations because, look, no doubt about it, Jamie Knight LaBelle has potential. He's about to turn 19. He's made the permanent step up to the U21s with Bristol City, whereas last year or the previous season, even the season before that, he was kind of flip-flopping between the U18s and the U21s because he was still old enough to play for the U18s. 
And you saw when he made the step up to the Canadian under 20 team at the CONCACAF championship, that he was a bit overwhelmed by that level because he was going up against, in some cases, fully fledged professionals. Now, not every player is going to experience the same developmental timeline. I understand that. And that's why he got a pass for that tournament as with a few others. But when you look at Defuja role, it's completely different because first of all, he's a year younger. Second of all, he made Fulham's preseason squad and played in friendlies against Premier League sides and then looked not out of place. In fact, pretty solid against a stable League One team in a competitive cup match for Fulham's under 21s and has all the intangibles. He has the composure. He has the technique. He has the tactical IQ. He's further along in his development than Knight LaBelle would be. So therefore, it makes sense why he would get a call-up. The fact he's also a dual national does help, but I think it's more to do with Defugerol's rapid rise over the last six months or so, rather than just, hey, here's a guy that we could give an opportunity to. He's actually kind of earned the opportunity to get a look. And we know that Mauro Biela rated him highly because he wanted to bring him into that Costa Rica camp in April, 2022, but he couldn't travel due to COVID reasons. So for that reason, like I'm not unopposed to the idea of giving players like Defugerol a call up, but Knight LaBelle might be someone who I think it's just way too early. And from Johnny Lower at Jay on the Spot 12, do you have any idea who will be the broadcaster for the Copa America? Likely TSN, I would imagine. I would imagine TSN. Yeah, because uh, they had the rights last time. I think they still have the rights for this current cycle. And plus, if the men qualify, then all the more reason for them to pick it up. So I, I would imagine it would go to, and maybe even CTV years games, who knows? Because it could be a similar World Cup situation. I mean, it could be, you know, quite the draw depending on who Canada gets, oh, gets, yeah, in, yeah. gets in their group, should yeah. they qualify? Because, you know, people will watch Canada versus Messi. People will watch yeah. Canada versus most of the South American nations, maybe not, you know, Peru. But, um... oh, okay. <laughs> well, I mean, we do suck, to be fair. We can't score a goal to save our lives. Yeah, so, Messi, yeah. Who, who wants And the Canadian men's national team, not the only national team gearing up for some competition. The Canadian women's national team released their squad to face Brazil in a pair of friendlies in Montreal and Halifax. Bev Priestman named a 26-player roster. For their friendly series, Melissa Dejane and Emma Reagan make the squad. Jade Riviere and Dion Rose also return from injury. No Simeo Ujo in the squad. Otherwise, usual suspects are there, including Christine Sinclair, who you'd imagine might have been a tentative call-up because she wasn't included in any of the uh, promotional material leading up to the game. Interesting to see Emma Reagan make the roster. She was in League 1 BC uh, a couple years ago, playing for Varsity FC, now Noxima FC. Um destroy and progress midfielder to grow to yeah. grab something from John Herdman and, and Alex's old newsletter as well. Um, but she's quality. She's been doing well uh, in Europe and will she see minutes? Probably not, but it's yeah. also not her, her first call up to the group. She's played with the group before. Um, and so it's not necessarily a completely foreign atmosphere, but you do like to see uh, from a league one BC perspective that somebody in that initial year has already benefited from that league, gone on to a pro league, and has now put themselves within the conversation for the national team. So it. it's already proving dividends. Uh, domestic to, options. Who would have known? It's already domestic di- league would have given opportunities to players. Yeah. Wow. It's already, you but know. it's already paying dividends to get more BC players on the national team. Because, also true. Like we haven't seen that on, on the men's or women's side for a while. And, you know, suddenly there's, there's another one. That's true. Yeah. And I think maybe to get more into the minutia of things, I think it also speaks to the fact, and I think we expected it anyway, but I think it just reinforces the fact that Bev is going to stick with the 3-4-3, the 3-4-1-2, the 3-5-2, however you want to describe it, because there's so many different ways they've set it up in the two games against Jamaica that it's pretty ambiguous. But regardless, they're going to stick to that system, I think. The fact they're bringing in another midfielder, a new midfielder who can maybe offer something different to what Quinn could offer or potentially other options it kind of goes to show you they're going to stick with it. Jay Riviere coming back is huge because that's one more option to have at wingback. Um, same with Deanne Rose, another option to have. So overall, there really aren't too many surprises, but it is good to see that they're going to stick with this because, I mean, we talked about it after the Jamaica matches in September, but the attacking output they produced was off the charts good. They maybe have to affect some things in transition defensively, but that's what this camp might be for. And uh, to do it against a pretty solid Brazil side is a good way to do it. So I, I think overall, there's a lot to like. And uh, I'm glad to see that Bev is giving some 
preserving players an opportunity because Emma Reagan's been terrific with 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 Koga um, in, in Denmark, and so to to see that she's been given that chance kind of goes to show you that other players will see that and go, oh look, if I end up doing well in what are pretty solid European leagues, maybe I too can get a call up to the national team. Yeah, I mean to to begin with Reagan. I mean, yeah, former. Uh... Um, you know, not somewhat slash varsity player, former TSS Rover as well. So shout out to them because that's now along with Julia Grosso and Jordan Hoytema. That's another alumni um, to, to add to to the list on playing on the women's national team. Um, and I just like it because Canada needs that number six depth because after Desiree Scott, it's been a bit stark at times. Quinn stepped up and has done a great job. They can obviously, um, you know, they bring that more and destroy and progress. Whereas sometimes with, you know, Scott as this reason why she's does the destroyer, it's a lot of destroy, but sometimes the ball progression hasn't always been there, but she remains immensely valuable. Uh, but, you know, beyond those two, it's been stark. Simia Wujo can play there. I see her profiling is more of a number eight Fleming and Grosso profile more as eight tens. Um, so, you know, all of a sudden there, Aladu pro- profiles more of an 810. Victoria Pickett profiles more of a, a, an 8. Uh, like, there's just a lot of, you know, midfielders of that, but not really a true 6. So I think someone like Reagan who can pro- uh, destroy and progress. She can also play anywhere across the back line, too, kind of showing her defensive shops. I know sometimes in League 1 BC, she plays it as, played as a center back, played as a full back. Um, and yeah, just, just been a great first season in Denmark, like uh, Peter mentioned, well, technically two seasons, she's already played a couple of Champions League games. She's captained the team already, given uh, her age. That's impressive as a first year pro. Um, so overall, I'm excited. She's also been in this Canadian squad before. Of course, she was like 18 when it when it happened for the first time. That can only be like a confidence boost, sorry, like the fact that she's also used to this environment. She won't be intimidated by it. So hopefully Reagan can can get a look. So I think building up that number six depth will be important. As for Dajanae, I mean, you know, the, the third goalkeeper spot will be pretty interesting next year. It's it's Sheridan as D'Angelo for one and two. Um, but after that, I mean, you know, there's uh, Lucienne Pruel. Um, there's, of course, now you can throw Dajanae in that mix. you got Devon Kerr, who you can't forget about in the NWSL. I mean, Riley Foster could push in. Uh, you know, c- congrats to her making her return after the her car accident, uh, you know, for, for Wellington. So that was a great story. Um, so I'll be interested to see how the goalkeeper situation plays out as well. But, yeah, looks like they're running a 3-4-2-1 long term. They need to build up some midfield depth. Um need to find continue to to tweak things across the board and for the most part these moves uh were content uh, you know a continuation of all that and getting into the canadian premier league playoffs as well well underway pacific defeated the hfx wonders 1-0 in a feisty affair at wonders grounds forged down cavalry 2-1 to clinch their spot in a fifth straight cpl final no longer the north star shield on the line in that the winner of cavalry against Pacific on Saturday advances to that final on October 28 in Hamilton. And just taking a look at each game so far, of course, we, we took a look at the playing game last week. That one was a thriller. And then another pretty feisty game and a pretty mm-hmm. thrilling game as well between Pacific and Halifax. this week. hundred percent. And honestly, kudos to Pacific for going in there on short rest, literally flew across the country from one end to the other and got the job done. And honestly, really smart of James Merriman to rotate basically all of his, well, three of his front four, because Easton Ongaro, of course, kept his place. But Adonijah Reed steps in, Kakuta Mane steps in, Gennaro Daniel steps in. And it was clear that the plan was, all right, let's try to kill them in transition on the flanks. And they did exactly that. Now, they got a bit of assistance from some questionable uh, decisions from Dan Nimick, from Ian Fillion, from really most of their back line. And... Regardless, the fact that they went in there, got the decisive goal, and really didn't give up a whole lot in open play and, and in general throughout most of the game against Halifax and what was a difficult atmosphere on that short turnaround, kudos to them because they're starting to figure it out. And they were due a bit of luck, to be fair, because they were one of, they were the biggest underachievers when it came to the underlying numbers in the CPL this season. They're tremendous on the road. And both of those things kind of shine through and that they finally got some luck to go their way. They got the job done on the road. And when they score first on the road, they have like what? They have seven wins, two losses and a draw or something like that. I think when they score first on the road. So it kind of goes to show you that if they get the first goal, pack it in. <laughs> like, and, and that's kind of the thought that I think most people have when Pacific scored. 
really good performance and they deserve their spot in, in the semifinal and honestly wouldn't hate their chances of getting it done again um, and, and getting to that final because they've been really locked in, it seems, since the playoffs started. And you know what? You knew that they were probably capable of it because they were a quality side that maybe just didn't get all the luck to go their way. Um, when it comes to Cavalry and Forge, I mean, it was a bit of a slugfest. In the end, Forge's perhaps slightly superior quality up front, maybe shine through. It was a very exciting game, entertaining game. But again, Forge's uh, championship pedigree kind of shines through. I know that that's probably cliche, but you knew that if it was going to be a close game like that and and in a playoff atmosphere, Forge is going to get it done. And they usually do against Calvary. I'm sure Tommy Wielder Jr. is sick and, and, and tired of it, but in the end, that shined through. So uh, sets up what's going to be a pretty exciting weekend this weekend and then obviously the final in a week and a half from now it was pretty comprehensive <laughs> <laughs> i mean if you want to add in anything else you can but i mean i can hop in it's just funny because i'm like that's pretty comprehensive that yeah, overall it's been uh you know a pretty entertaining start to the uh playoffs i mean you know specifically these semifinals, or at least in the side of these not these semifinals, but this pacific quarterfinal I mean, it was just a defensive masterclass from Pacific. It felt like I, I just, I think again, for me, anytime you keep 27% possession like Pacific, the fact that they only limited Halifax to, I think it was 0.76 XG. That's a pretty good defensive showing when you're not holding that much of the ball. That means yeah. you're getting in the right areas. They made some huge blocks. And, and most then, of it came in the last 10 minutes too. So Yeah. Like it was just so good defensively, and yeah, maybe their goal was a bit scrappy. I mean, it was kind of funny they admitted. Uh, I remember talking to, uh, you know, interviewed a Pacific player this week, and they're joking like, "Look, we scored an own goal. It was ugly. We don't care. We won. Just get the job done." And that's playoffs. Sometimes you you have to to grit down, and 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 you know, sometimes it's not going to be the game plan, especially when it's set less than seventy two hours. You travel across the country. Sometimes it has to to get ugly. So credit to them, but also credit to Halifax. They played their way. Really, that own goal aside, they were, you know, solid defensively. Um, they just couldn't turn their their th- those shots into dangerous chances. Um, and but overall, they had a lot to be proud of. They put on a show in front of that sold out crowd. And yeah, I feel like Wanderers next year they could be a very good sneaky pick to finish top two or even push for a regular season title if this is just what year one might look well, well looks like under Patrice Geyser. As for Forge Cavalry, it was just funny because. It's just cavalry in the playoffs. They just, uh, you know, they they have this, you know, hump to overcome. And it's going to be fascinating to see if they can get that monkey off the back for Pacific because they played relatively well against Forge. They started very well. And then just that, that you know, goal comes in off a corner. What a ball from Kyle Becker. What perfect area calamity ensues. It's in the net. And then cavalry just kind of lost their mojo for 40 minutes. And next thing you know, you're down 2-0. And against Forge, you're not going to come back 2-0 in the playoffs. They tried and cavalry made a good push. But ultimately, that middle period of the game killed them. So I think, for what it's worth, if they start and play like they did the, those first thirty minutes, it's going to be they're going to win a lot of games. Um, but they also just can't have the the middle part of the game that they had, especially against a Pacific team that can be stingy and that can take the sting out of games like they've shown. As for Forge, I mean, it's just what Forge does. It was it's impressive, especially for me the big players, the way Kyle Becker stepped up. Uh, you know, just the the way how he continues to step up in year five, the way he does. It was a good game from Tristan Henry, uh, who also made some key saves. The back line as a whole had a solid showing. Like, you know, it was just a good team performance. And then the individual stepped up. And that's what you need in the playoffs sometimes. Because, um, you know, if you got a good team performance, that helps. And then at the end of the day, stars win you games. And, and, and Kyle Becker did that for Forge. And your predictions for Calvary against Pacific this weekend? I think that Pacific is going to get it done again. I don't know why. Now that I've said that, because I kind of doubted them before this, I feel like now it's going to be the reverse jinx and Calvary will win, but they're, they're kind of on a roll. You can see that their confidence is growing high defensively. They've been very good in both games, maybe a little less so against York, but against Halifax tremendous. And they show that they can be a solid defensive unit. Um, can't see why they can't do it again. Um, we know they're a set piece threat as well, so they could always steal a goal in that way. And I could see it being a very tight one nil, but Pacific for me, I think that'll be my prediction and it'll be Pacific and Forge in the final. Yeah, it's so tough to call because you can make a good argument for both sides. I guess just to go on the other side of it, I'd probably say Cal, you know, Cavalry. They are at home. They've been really good at home. 
Um, they've also rarely lost back to, they haven't lost back to back games this year. So they have a good record of bouncing back. Um, so yeah, I think, while I think Pacific they're they're historically been a better playoff team. Um, they have the edge on the other side. There's also a good argument why Cavalry could see this as a slump buster, but to be fair, Cavalry have never won a knockout playoff game. So this is going to be a huge test for them to show that they can step up in this moment. So either way, it's going to be very close. Peter goes Pacific. I'll go Cavalry. Ben can be the tiebreaker. I'm going to go Pacific. I don't know what it is, but their win against HFX after all that travel and on short rest convinced me um, that they might have something going for them this year. And I, I don't necessarily think they beat Forge in the final, um, but I do think they probably get there and we'll have a rematch of the 2021 final uh, on October 28th. The CPL award nominees were also unveiled. Golden Glove nominees, Marco Carducci, Tristan Henry, and Rayan Yesley. Defender of the Year, Dan Klopp, Magikar James, and Dan Nimick. The Canadian U21 Player of the Year, James Cameron, Kwasi Poku, or Matteo Debrienne. And the Coach of the Year, Patrice Geyser, Bobby Samiriotis, and Tommy Wielden Jr. I believe we all had a vote in this. I guess just go through uh, who you guys voted for, for this year's CPL awards. Yeah. Some of these awards were really tough to pick. Like the golden glove one, I was really debating between Carducci and Yesley. I, I gave the eventual edge to Yesley because he faced more shots. And I think that usually when you are a goalkeeper, who's that active, it, it can be easier because you're in the zone. And sometimes when you're a goalkeeper like Carducci and you're not, you know, entirely active the whole time and you have to come up with that big save when you're playing a bit cold, that is worth noting. But I, I think that Yesley overall is a goalkeeper. I, I just have more confidence in him, especially from claiming crosses. Um, so I went with Yesley slightly over Carducci. Defender of the year, I ultimately went with Dan Nimick because he kind of came out of nowhere. And look, he is still raw, of course. I think we kind of saw it in the Pacific game. He made one or two pretty grave errors um Mandrakar James could have easily gone with him and, and no doubt about it he probably is one of the most complete defenders in the league but I went with Nimick just because he kind of came out of nowhere and helped what was a very solid Halifax backline from basically I'd say probably June onwards really really solidify themselves um U21 I went with Matteo Dubrienne because again came out of nowhere had to play in multiple positions not that Kwasi Poku didn't but maybe Poku, it becomes a victim of the fact that he's playing for Forge and, and can be, for lack of a better term, protected, quote unquote. Um, so I went, went with Debrienne just because he was, again, more of a surprise candidate. Coach of the year, Patrice Geyser. Um, again, taking nothing away from what Bobby and, and Tommy did this year, but for them to go from what were they second bottom last year to what was a firmly established playoff team and having made all the changes they made, that is worth noting. And I, it, it is still kind of crazy that Bobby may, may still not get a coach of the year award, but I mean, look, the fact he's made five straight CBL finals probably speaks for itself. He's usually not one for the individual accolades. Um, but you have to give Patrice credit for what has been a truly tremendous turnaround at Halifax. So that, that was, those were my award picks. Yeah. For me, I, I went Ryan Yesley for, for similar reasoning. He was a bright spot on a bad Valor team. Uh, Defender of the year. I went with Dan Nimick. I, you know, I like to see the growth of a, uh, a young Canadian, uh, Canadian U21 player of the year. I went with Matteo de Brienne. I think that was a, a pretty simple pick, straightforward. I like that he came through U Sports as well. Uh, and coach of the year, I went Patrice Geyser, um, just with how he stepped in and made an immediate impact with that HFX group. And there was a lot of doubt with the whole Vonderers heading into the season. And then he, he was able to really turn that into a, a Canadian Premier League team and get the, the best out of players, you know, Mass, Massimo Farron, proving that he's a, a quality CPL player coming from League One Ontario and just being able to improve a lot of the top players. Uh, so I think that was uh, something that warranted my vote in terms of the coach of the year. And Bobby Smirniotis, sorry, but I just think it, it'll be bridesmaid once again in the coach of the year votes. Yeah, in terms of uh, the what I went for, Golden Glove, I actually went Marco Carducci just because I split hairs on this one for Yesley and Carducci. I think it's one where overall, you know, Yesley probably like just in terms of the best goalkeeping performances, Yesley had it. But in terms of award like this, I'm just going the overall body of work over the year. And the thing that got me was that Yesley had such a dominant first 15 or 16 games. And then he kind of came down to earth in the last 12 or 13. He still finished with a positive expected goal differential. 
uh, on a team that, you know, struggled at times to, with chance, uh, you know, chances coming against them. But in the end, you know, Carducci, what he faced again uh, behind the Cavalry defense at times was also like, he, he you know, it's not like he was completely um, sh- sheltered either. Carducci did face a decent amount of shots and he was just consistent over the course of the year. And he and Yesi are pretty much the only keepers who played over a thousand minutes or even in the positive in terms of goals saved above expected. Um, and I think that's also a credit to Carducci. So I went Carducci. I was this close to voting for Yesley could have gone either way. Maybe if you asked me on a different day, I think Yesley had it to me until about the last week. It was just the consistency of Carducci in terms of defender of the year. I just went Dan Klomp. He was just so consistent. Again, I, I kind of went for uh, consistency. It, it appears is the theme for most of these awards, at least, uh, I, you know, I think Nimick was f- fantastic. Um, but the edge for, for me was Klomp. It just feels like he had the slight edge defensively because Nimick um you know, because Nimick had a lot of his offensive contributions and on the ball contributions, I think made him a great defender. But in just terms of the defense, there's some key numbers that showed that uh, Klomp was a big reason why Cavalry, because Cavalry did allow a lot of shots, but they didn't actually, a lot of them didn't reach Carducci. And that was part of the reason of guys like Klomp making a lot of blocks, a lot of headers, a lot of interventions. So I went Klomp, but you could have gone either way between Nimick and Klomp. U21, I went Debrienne, not that much of a surprise coach of the year. I went Tommy Wheelan jr. I just think heading into this year, many people saw this Cavalry team as a fifth, fourth place team, given some of the names they'd lost and some of the new guys they brought in. This was the youngest Cavalry team they've had yet. Like part of Cavalry's success is that they've always been so veteran heavy. You've always can rely on guys like Nick Ledgerwood, Mason Trafford, uh, you know, Elijah, it could be all these guys that had been there since day one. And they all, all of a sudden they're all gone. And the fact that Tommy Wheelan jr. Had, the third best season in all CPL history. The only two seasons better were 2021 or no, sorry, 2019 forge and cavalry. And he was within one point of besting that 2019 forge team and six points off of that cavalry 2019 team. I think the league's way better than it is now. So I think that was just an incredible achievement. Uh, so I went Wilden junior, although guys are, I'm again, the story to, to, to bring Halifax to where they are and the improvement, it was close, but I just think Wilden junior as well. It's kind of forgotten that heading into the season, no one expected this out of this cavalry team for his you know people always expect them to do good in the regular season it kind of felt that they were going to maybe be the team that drops off not like a forge for example who everyone thought was going to run away with the league and how about your your player of the year nominee's not quite out yet yeah for me this was really tricky to pick between ollie bassett and kyle becker i ultimately went becker probably just because of the tiebreaker forge made the playoffs um, but you look at the teams that can, or the players that make their teams click and Becker is that guy, um, seven assists this season, threat on set pieces, links play together very nicely. Bassett does the same with Ottawa. Um, but I just went with Becker because he's usually among the best players in the league. And when Forge is, is clicking, usually so is he. So it, it made logical sense to me. Yeah, I weighed between, for me, it was between Ali Moosey and Dan Klomp. I just, it was between those two from Cavalry. Ultimately, I went Moosey just because I think Cavalry's defense, um, you know, Klomp was an immense part of it. It was also a pretty good team effort. Bradley Camden played a huge shift. Um, you know, Eric Cobza stepping in. Marco Carducci, of course, helping play his role. I just look at someone like Ali Moosey and the value he brought to that attack. Um, it just, you know, he was just chance creation machine among what's the best and big chances created, chances created, expected assists. If anything, he should have had way more goal contributions if his team around him could finish. And I think as well, just a lot of the impact, uh, you know, went beyond the goals and assists. So I, I went Moosey, but uh, yeah, it was a tough choice between the likes of Klomp and some of the other names mentioned. And from Dan Clark, which KMPL players do you see making a move this winter? And if you can, which league would be ideal for those players? I know that um, Fabian Stifler asked about Dan Nimick. I, I think that would be the first name that kind of comes to mind as someone who could potentially make a move. I think it might be a bit too early. Like he could end up moving in the summer, let's say to an MLS team who's maybe looking to load up with a bit of depth. Uh, but I think that that would be an ideal next step up for him um, because he is still a bit raw. If he goes into the right system, kind of like what we saw with Lucas McNaughton in Nashville, you can see the benefits he can provide specifically in the air on the ball um, and then if you can mask some of his other weaknesses, maybe a little bit defensively in terms of when to step, when to stay back, reading wingback sinks, things like that. 
um, and you have the patience with him, he could turn into a pretty solid all-around defender. Um, so he would be top of mind for me. I've all, I'd also be very curious to see what happens with Sean Young because he's kind of played a little further forward in the midfield, played more recently deeper in the midfield. He's looked solid in both. But we also saw in that Whitecaps game, he got a little bit overawed by the occasion. Is that just a one-off or is that maybe the sign of a player who still needs to grow in that way? Could a step up to that next level bring it out of him? Possibly. He is at that age where he can make the step. But those would be the two that I'd look at as being like the prime candidates to move uh, among some others. You could also look at Matteo de Brienne, Kwasi Poku, maybe one of Ruben Spasius or Taryn Campbell makes the jump. I don't know, but th- those would be the, the first two that I'd look at. Yeah, I appreciate you uh, just almost leaving me the joy of being like, okay, I can throw in some fresh names and he just completely Sorry. cleared, you just cleared house at the end of your uh, You can go in more in depth on all the other ones I didn't mention. <laughs> I figured I'd leave you that. <laughs> no it's all good um i was just the point i would wonder is i'd look for guys who have had at least two seasons because I, I wonder with someone like nimic if you know scouts might be like look great first season go do it again because yeah. i think we've kind of seen that that a lot of the cpl moves over the last few years it's been consistent performances over a couple of years like i think it's telling that a guy last year some of the uh, the guys who moved on are guys like dd nabzi who was a day oneer marco bustos yeah. you know uh Dominic Zator, even Victor Latouri had been around for a couple of seasons. Um, Urban Peppel as well. So I think some of those guys that have had that body work for that, I think Pasillas could be one of the top of the line just because, again, slow start to the year. He still finishes with double-digit goals again. You know, had this, I think it was second best or best XG in the league uh, as well. Just consistently chance-generating, finishing, showed good growth in his hold-up play, had more assists this year. I think someone like Pasillas could be due, especially because Patrice Bernier has mentioned many a time that he's got interest already. Honest, yeah. So I'd say him, Kwasi Poku as well, because two good seasons for Poku. He trialed with Hacken last year, and hey, Hacken's a very good team. And, you know, maybe he doesn't go to a Hacken say, but who knows? He impressed and obviously... Uh, you know, got a trial with them and played in some preseason games. So I'd say Poku is a good candidate because of that. Ditto with Dibrian. He's had two very good seasons. I feel like he's just that bundle of energy that coaches will love that he can kind of play anywhere. He's got that energy, that versatility. Um, He's good on the ball as well. He's got quite the left foot as we've seen since the U sports days. So I'd throw Dibrian because of that reason. Um, I'd, Of course, I'd add Sean Young. Um, And yeah, I'd say that's kind of, a, you know, the the archetype of guys um who i could see moving and i mean there's probably a few more you can throw in that i'm not thinking off the top of my head like i wonder if someone could be looking at like a max ferrari for example because it feels like this year he really got some good consistency in his game uh, after some injuries and you know he's uh playing a bit at fullback i wonder if someone like ferrari could get a look um you can you know there's a few other fullbacks as well uh across the board heck yesley is an example two very you know one and a half very good seasons for valor he tried he trained last year with ajaxio and the uh he's also somebody you could probably throw into that mix as well and it's mls decision day this weekend cf montreal takes on the columbus crew with playoffs on the line in that one the vancouver whitecaps against lafc top four on the line and the whitecaps can really go all out they're in sixth right now and they can't finish worse than sixth Toronto FC against Orlando City in John Herdman's debut. And that one should be an interesting one because John Herdman comes into uh, certainly a mess. He does. And it's against one of the top teams in the East. So this could be a chance to really see what sort of initial blueprint he lays before he maybe gets a chance to build out a squad in his image. But it'll be intriguing because he's had a couple weeks of training sessions now. He's already said goodbye to guys like Franco Ibarra. He's spoken openly about wanting Insigne and Bernadeschi to stay. We'll see maybe how they perform, or at least Bernadeschi performs. I still think he can be a pretty key piece of the puzzle, to be fair, because especially with a coach like John, who you know is is going to be very detail-oriented. He's going to show guys on the training pitch, all right, this is what we do in this situation, in that situation, etc. And given the level of coaching in Italy you know that players like Bernadeschi and Insigne will really appreciate that level of detail. So it'll be intriguing to see how that translates in that game. Uh, the Vancouver game, look, I, I think we all kind of said it in our group chat after they drew Colorado, barely drew Colorado, um, and then went out and lost to Salt Lake as well. Watch them get seven of nine or nine of nine points against LAFC, St. Louis, and Seattle, and it's looking to be that it's going to be difficult. You don't know what the status of Andres Cubas is going to be. I think he's questionable for Saturday. There's a chance he could play a part. At the very least, he'll be ready for the playoffs, which is huge. Uh, but that's going to be the X factor here. I do think that the Whitecaps can win this because LAFC, 
They have clinched second, have they not? I, yeah. I believe they have. Believe they have yeah. yeah, so they clinched second. They, they no, they clinched second if they match Seattle's result this right. weekend. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, so they, they kind of have to go out there with something in mind in terms of you probably have to draw, you maybe have to win, who knows. Um, but the Whitecaps at home are just so unstoppable. If, if they can get the first goal, and they've usually had the momentum to open the games, if they can get that first goal, I think it's job done, they can win. Um, but the Kubas absence, if if it ends up happening, that's going to be really the big X factor. Well, for what it's worth, Andres Kubas sounds like he trained fully. Um, it sounds like Ryan Gold's also good to go after a bit of a foot injury scare in oh, midweek in training. Yeah. So that's good news that those two will be there because, like you mentioned, those are kind of the straws that stirred the drink along with someone like a Brian White, of course, who remains in great form. So for the Whitecaps, it feels like they'll get a result. Um, but I mean, we'll, we'll see, we'll, we'll see what they can do. You, you know, Maxime Crepo is going to have something up his sleeve, uh, you know, in, in a return to Vancouver in a game of this magnitude, it's a big crowd as well, which for whatever reason, whenever the white caps get big crowds at BC place, sometimes, um, you know, they don't always, uh, so, sometimes they come out a bit shy, so to speak. So this is a good chance. Like, for oh, them there's to... so many people here. Oh my God. What is this? <laughs> so, so it's like, again, in the Canadian championship final this year, they showed that they can put that behind them some, you know, but it's still something where this is a, still a decision day game. Sometimes in the past, there's been a lot of, like, I think to Seattle, for example, 2021, where the white caps, they only needed a draw in that day to make the playoffs, but man, did they make it nervous? And I mean, Max Kripo had to save the ball with his face. I think it was to, to book the white caps into the playoffs. Um, so I, it'll be interesting in terms of top four. We'll see what happens around them. It isn't that impossible because I think Houston, um, I think RSL is playing Colorado away. Um, they just need to draw from RSL, which is not impossible. Um, and there's Houston are playing Portland. Portland's in great form. So that one's not impossible. And then Seattle playing in St. Louis. Um, and as for CF Montreal, I, I, it's hard to tell. I think Columbus away. I'm struggling to see. Uh, a scenario where they win, but also knowing how the East is in, I'm sure uh, Montreal will somehow get a draw and, and squeak in. Not sure if that if they're able to do that or if they need a win. Um, so Montreal, I'm a little less certain on. But hey, Wilfred Nan- the Wilfred Nancy Bowl, maybe they'll be able to uh, get the revenge. So what I expect on decision day for the Vancouver Whitecaps is a five nil win over LAFC. Wow. Brian White gets all five, wins the Golden Boot with Denny Bonga in the building. Wow. Okay, maybe that's wow. not going to happen. But I, I do. If that happens, <laughs> if that happens, we'll remember that. We will. I do want to take a look at at the Whitecaps and the potential playoff opponents heading into this final weekend because I think there's pretty well any opponent that you look at and are confident against, except Houston. Probably. And there's a chance that the Whitecaps play Houston. Very good chance, actually, they play Houston. And if that happens, I fully expect Houston to win because they're just they're, they're one of those sides that. Like when you watch them play, they very clearly have a setup where defensively everybody's super disciplined. Offensively, they kind of chip in by committee. Um, if they're hosting the majority of the games, they've got the heat advantage, although it has been getting colder in Houston recently, so maybe that could help. Um, but they're very comfortable at home, so overall you know that they're going to be a bit of a challenge there. That's like the one team that they've never played against well. They never play well in Texas in general, but especially Houston. Um, so that could be some hoodoo there. Everybody else, yeah, you have complete faith in them. But then on the flip side, they could easily capitulate because defensively they've had their issues because they aren't particularly the fastest back line. Um, they're sometimes wasteful in front of goal and in games where chances could be few and far between that could end up hurting them a lot. So it, it, it really could go either way. Like you could easily see them making a run all the way to MLS Cup. You could also see them getting knocked out of the first hurdle as well. It's interesting. So I'd say probably the two I'd want to avoid at Vancouver at all costs, it's Seattle, just because the Whitecaps haven't won a game in Seattle since like in almost, a, what, over half a decade, pushing yeah, towards to a decade. No, but still, it's something that road record could be a concern because if you're playing Seattle, you're probably the lower seed. Um, you're twice away and like yeah yeah, you can get in with the draw and win on penalties but um we'll 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 see about that uh and it's lafc i think just how lafc was able to throttle the white caps in the champions league this year was kind of a you know warning sign i think other than that yes st louis is going to be a tough game but you know the underlying numbers uh you know could indicate that the white caps could have a chance houston 
the road I'd be worried for Houston, but also the Whitecaps throttled them at home this year. RSL is another one I'd worry just because, I mean, they dropped both of their meetings with RSL this year uh, in both pretty frustrating fashion. Like they led both games, lost both of them. Um, so those are, the, you know, I'd say it's it's kind of pick your poison. Avoid Seattle LFC, maybe avoid RSL. Then after that, uh, we'll see. But uh, either way, they'll, they'll, they'll be good matchups for sure. Like a, a Vancouver-Portland, like sign me up. But let's get another Cascadia playoff game. It only... Last year felt weird that no Cascadia team was in, so it would be fitting to get another Cascadia matchup in a right, playoff game. I forgot game. about that. Jeez. And the MLS Players Association also released their updated MLS salary guide. Richie Larea, Sam Atacubi, and Junior Hoylet make $1.43 million, $817,000, and $228,000, respectively. TFC, second overall in the league in wages, but they're dead fucking last. Uh, <laughs> the Vancouver Whitecaps, 24th overall in wages, and they're 13th, while Montreal, 28th overall in wages and 17th Lorenzo Insigne has already made, I think it was the fourth most money ever in MLS. Uh, fourth or fifth. Yeah. Two years with, with TFC in which no, year and achieved, a half. That's right. Yeah. Which they've not achieved very much. Uh, Sebastian Jovinko earned less than Lorenzo yeah. Insigne has, which is crazy to think about. Messi already the top. Yeah. No, 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 sorry. He's not Michael Bradley. 24 there. players are, have, have only earned more than Messi has That's already in MLS history. Um, and Michael Bradley was number one. Josie Alfredo, number two. Uh, TFC, I think, had four of the of, of the top earners in MLS history. LA Galaxy, not surprisingly, had four of the top earners, and everybody else was sort of spread around, I think. Look, R- Richie is earning just below the TAM threshold, but, I mean, that, those are also the wages he was earning while at TFC, and they picked up his wages from Nottingham Forest and whatnot, so... Not a surprise he's earning that. I'm sure he's going to do be due for a pretty massive bump after the season because um, there's reports out there he's going to be handed a DP contract and made one of the faces of the club. So we'll see what happens there, but thoroughly deserved for him. Um, Sam on 817 is pretty reasonable as well, to be fair. Like he is a very much a top tier fullback in MLS. So for him to be earning that kind of money is still pretty solid. Uh, and Junior on 228, don't think it's a shock. It's a prorated contract. He's kind of a veteran contributor at this point, but someone who'd be really good in the room and can instill really high standards. So I think for that price, you're, you're getting a good deal for sure. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how the caps, cap crunches out next year um, just with everything because obviously the Lurea salary shows why they had to loan Kai Sato out. And of course, Kyle Alexandre remains loaded out because they needed to free up that third DP spot by moving the U22 players off their roster. Um, so, you know, if they, if it stays that way and they sell on Caicedo uh, and sell on Kayo as well, um, you know, they have that room for a third DP. Do they make Larea that third DP? Is there a scenario where they chase new U22 players and try to bring Larea under the TAM threshold, which he can also be, uh, it's interesting, but because yeah, I think the, the wages could end up being a, you know, a bit of an obstacle, but you also wonder if you're forced, it obviously sounds like they might want to just send him back to MLS Maybe there'll be a negotiation to be had where they can bring him in at a bit of a lower threshold, maybe somewhere similar in that range of what Atacubi is making. Of course, Axel Schuster noted that Atacubi took a pay cut from what he was making in Turkey. So that kind of set a bit of a precedent as well, I suppose. But of course, Atacubi returning to a you know the club where he, he came through as a homegrown. Um, so, you know, I think that's going to be a good deal for the Whitecaps to have him on that salary going forward. So it'll just be interesting to see if they can bring Larea back or if they maybe, you know, are going to have to look elsewhere for a wing back or promote Ryan Raposo. We have to remember he's a free agent and could, you know, uh, you know, based on his form, if he ends up staying and starting at wing back, that's also going to be a pretty darn good alternative. So it'll be an interesting offseason for the Whitecaps, especially if they do well in the playoffs, because as we know, that will always raise the value of certain players and make some certain contract decisions that much more interesting. And also some rumblings around MLS about potentially doing away with the idea of discovery rights, which could be interesting. A hard journalist, uh, Harji Johal, reporting that Axel Schuster told her that I don't think we can have a scenario without any discovery rights because at the end of the day, we can't negotiate against ourselves. At the end, the league signs the player. If there's no discovery rights, the two clubs would negotiate against themselves. And a lot of that sounds like the way that the NASL went down. Yeah, it is. And I'm sure the league is, is going to be careful with that. But I mean, they're also at a very tricky time, right? Because you have the messy factor. Clubs are going to be willing to invest more, but you still also have to be somewhat careful because if you inflate it too much, then it could end up bursting just like we saw with the NASL, right? I, I know that the 
MLS has lasted a lot longer than the NASL has at this point, but they're in a very precarious situation here where they have the means to be able to spend more, but it's about how you spend it really that matters as opposed to the amount. And just on a last note, Sierra McCormack took over as owner and CEO of Treaty United FC, the first female co-owner in the League of Ireland, and she's in it with Vancouver company Tricor Pacific. So certainly interesting to see her uh, get into co-ownership uh, in the League of Ireland after being the whistleblower on a lot of the white cap sexual assault cases. That's all we've got for episode 144 of the Northern Football Podcast. Thanks so much for your questions. Once again, a lot happening in the CPL, MLS, and of course with the national teams. And we'll be back next week to talk about it all for Peter Galindo and Alex Gongarizic. I've been Ben Steiner. Thanks so much for listening.